you can open with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Now let me just begin today by taking some responsibility and just reminding you that your pastor um, is not uh, without mistake. I am in charge of everything that you see on the bulletin picture, what you see on the screen, and I messed it up because we're actually covering verse 15 today, and somehow I left that off. So just know Ephesians 6, 10 through 15, so just you have to read one more verse with me today, but we can do it together. So welcome to week five of our Armor of God series where we are continually reminded that we live in a spiritual world and we are in a spiritual war. And I'm going to say that every week until we get it, until we understand it. From the cradle all the way to the grave, life is a war. And the Bible says a whole lot about our enemy. In fact, our enemy is first mentioned in Genesis 3. And we'll see him for the last time in Revelation 20. Every New Testament writer mentions him. So make no mistake about it. There is a real enemy whose plans for us are diametrically opposed to the plans that God has for us. For Satan's character stands in stark contrast to the character of our holy God. But let me just give you the reality of how opposite they are. So our God reveals truth. Satan conceals truth. Our God is truth. Satan is the father of all lies. God gives life. Satan tries to take and destroy life. God produces spiritual works. Satan produces sinful works. God will test us to make us mature. Satan will tempt us in order to destroy us. God sets us free and Satan imprisons us. So it goes. Satan will not fight fair and he will not quit. We have a real enemy. But before we jump in today, I want to begin this morning by playing an imaginary game with you. It's a game that I have called the Great What If Battles of History game. So a game that takes different armies from different periods of history and pits them against one another on an imaginary battlefield to find out who is the greatest warrior of all time. And on today's episode, we have an epic showdown. So in one corner, we have the armies of Genghis Khan, who ruled the great Mongol Empire from 1206 AD to 1227 AD, an empire which became the largest contiguous empire in the history of the world. In the other corner, we have all of the military forces of the United States that took part in Operation Desert Storm in 1991. So grab your popcorn and get ready for the battle. Now, of course, if this was a real episode, how long would it last? About 20 seconds and the episode would be over. Sure, Genghis Khan, of course, he has his 300,000 men and horses and shields and swords and bows and arrows, but how long would those forces, as great and as mighty warriors as they are, how long would they last against machine guns and grenades and tanks and missiles and attack helicopters and bombers? And you get the idea. So the Mongol hordes would simply not be equipped to fight that kind of battle. Now follow with me here. This is a reminder for us that you and I are in the very same predicament. 
There is an unseen battle raging all around us every single day. And God showed us through Paul that this battle is a spiritual battle where we are under attack from the rulers, from the authorities, from the cosmic powers over this present darkness, from the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And like the Mongol hordes in our pretend battle, on our own, we are not equipped to stand against the schemes of the enemy. On our own, we will not last against his schemes, which is why Paul says we must put on the whole armor of God. And this morning we come to the command of Paul to put on as our shoes the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now let me just say this, and this is like the no-duh statement of the day. It's one thing to go barefoot at the beach. It's another thing to go barefoot on the battlefield. There are just some situations where you need shoes for the occasion. And I would guess, never been in war, but I would guess that war would be one of them. I'm just, just assuming. And spiritually speaking, the Christian life is one of those situations. Just think about how can a soldier advance on the battlefield? How can a soldier stand firm any given length of time apart from shoes? So sh shoes become an absolute necessity and reality of the soldier. Now, it was Napoleon who said that an army marches on its stomach. In one standpoint, if you don't know what that means, it means you need fuel in here to be able to go forward. And we would all go, yes, although maybe some hangry soldiers might work every so often. But we would say that's a true statement. But it is also true that an army marches on its feet. An army marches on its feet. This truth was especially true in World War I in which there was a condition called trench foot. Due to the cold, wet, unsanitary conditions, the feet would go numb, they would swell, they would begin to blister, and eventually gangrene would set in, and the only option became amputation. And as a result, at first, soldiers were ordered to change their socks several times a day. The problem is the battlefield where they were didn't change at all. In one battle, it was estimated that 40% of the casualties were from trench foot and not from uh, any, anything else accompanied by, by war. So just think about this. When it comes to the battlefield, our feet matter. Our feet matter. And Jewish historian Josephus observed that the Roman army had superior footwear, and they were the first to wear sandals with hobnails on the bottom. So think cleats. More on that in just a second. But they were equipped to stand in the midst of battle. They were equipped to advance in any ter terrain. And it, it is into this vital and often overlooked aspect of armor that we come today. Shoes of the gospel of peace. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word by reading Ephesians 6, 10 through 14 plus 1. So beginning of verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may, may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the standing that we have in you. That you are our foundation. You are our rock. But we also, Lord, thank you for the calling that you have given us to advance. To show us how our standing and our calling today go together in a way that will bring you glory and honor through your people, through your church. Have your way, O oh God, in Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. So you have probably seen or at least heard about the 1994 Academy Award winning film Forrest Gump. Now, the film, of course, captivated audiences with its ability to capture all the nuances of its main character, Forrest. So the first scene in the movie depicts Forrest sitting on a bench in a town square next to a local nurse. And he begins the conversation with her like this. Now, I'm not going to try my Forrest Gump impression because I don't do impressions. But here's what I know. I'm going to say the words and you're going to hear his voice in your mind. It's not even going to come from me. It's going to come from your mind. So he says this, those must be comfortable shoes. I bet you could walk all day in shoes like that and not feel a thing. I wish I had shoes like that. Mama always said there's an awful lot you can tell about a person by their shoes, where they're going, where they've been. And shoes play an important role in our lives. They can stand as symbols. Think about ruby red slippers of Dorothy or Cinderella's glass slippers. Or they could even just be the cool self-lacing Nike high tops of Back to the Future 2. Anyway, <laughs> shoes are valuable because our feet matter. Our feet matter. So after highlighting the belt and the breastplate, Paul now draws our attention to the soldier's footwear, which was distinctive from all other footwear. So it has been said that in that day, civilians wore soft leather shoes called calce. Now, indoors, both men and women wore slippers called sole. Roman soldiers, however, wore heavy military leather sandals called caliga, which were half boot and half sandal. Now, to the bottoms were also, as I just said, hobnails, frequently arranged in patterns. So these metal studs allowed the soldiers not only to dig into the ground, but it also kept them sure-footed in the midst of all the terrain in which they walked. It also, as I read this week, served as a nice little extra weapon. If they got the person they were fighting on the ground, they would stomp on them with these sandals. But the shoes of a Roman soldier were a very important part of the armor because Many Roman soldiers would normally walk, within a day, 30 miles each day. And if they didn't have good shoes, you're not going to be able to make the journey, and you're going to be useless for the battle. Now, some commentators point out how strange it is that Paul, in the middle of talking about warfare, 
the middle of talking about a battle, he talks about the gospel of peace. And they say, how, how in the world does that make sense? But it's not strange to us, or it shouldn't be. The aim in the midst of warfare for us is that people would accept the peace treaty that God holds out to them, meaning faith in Jesus Christ, to be at peace with God. And the powers of Satan, the powers of sin, do everything they can to keep people away from that peace. So in the midst of the battle, Paul says there is a gospel of peace, which is ours. So I'm going to lay before us this morning three amazing realities of the gospel of peace that we are called to put on and walk in. The first is this. The God, this gospel imparts peace. This gospel imparts peace. The heart of the gospel message is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins. What a gospel. Yet many people, unfortunately, treat the gospel as if, as if it's something to begin your Christian life with, and then you just throw it aside and move on about your life. As if we get the heaven and hell thing out of the way, and then I just move on about the business of my everyday life. And yes, it's true that the gospel gets you to heaven, but the gospel also has a lot to say about the way you live here on earth. In fact, one, one pastor said this, the gospel isn't just a diving board by which you jump into the Christian life. No, the gospel is the whole pool. And the beautiful thing about the gospel is it's a pool so deep you'll never get to the bottom of it. So through our belief in this gospel, we are justified. We have peace with God. Paul put it this way in Romans 5.1. You'll see it on the screen. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, unfortunately, that doesn't hit us the way that it should hit us. To hear those words, you have peace with God. The reason it doesn't hit us the way it should is because we don't understand how great a chasm, how great a gap there is between God and humanity, between his holiness and between our unholiness. And there is a separation between us and God that makes restoration and makes relationship impossible for us to earn on our own. So there is this wide gap between us and God, and there is nothing that we can do about it on our own. And we know, and we must continue to declare that our salvation, our peace comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. It is not earned, it is received. Which is, what's going to make heaven so great? Let me tell you one of the things that's going to make heaven so great. There will be no bragging in heaven. There will be no bragging in heaven. Nobody in heaven going, let me tell you all the things I did to get here. None of that. Instead, we're all going to be pointing to the Lamb who will forever bear the marks of our salvation, bragging forever on Him. We'll forever brag on Jesus. But the message of the gospel is this, that because of Jesus, we can have peace with God. Meaning, the war is over. The war with God is over. Meaning, we were at odds with God. Again, apart from Jesus Christ, the Bible calls us children of wrath. The Bible calls us enemies of God. Now, an unbeliever might go, no, 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 I'm not a, 
enemy of God. I don't have anything against God. Yet that's not the point. The point is that God has something against the unbeliever. That's the point. Isaiah 48, the Lord says there is no peace for the wicked. And Psalm 711 indicates that God feels indignation against the wicked every single day. Therefore, please hear this. The great enemy for our peace is not our circumstances. The great enemy of our peace is not other people getting onto our agenda. And the greatest enemy of our peace isn't whoever sits at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. The greatest enemy of our peace is the sin that lives within us. That is the greatest enemy of our peace. And don't, please don't come to me and go, well, now, no. The greatest enemy is look in the mirror and you will see him. Because we are a sinful wretch and we are deserving of the very wrath of God. Sin separates us from God. So therefore, we need a peace treaty to be signed. Now, again, unbelievers feel differently. Unbelievers might even feel peaceful. They might feel at peace with themselves. They might feel at peace with others. But according to the word of God, they are not at peace with God. The peace that an unbeliever experiences is the same peace of someone sitting on the lounge chair drinking champagne on the deck of the, of, the, of the Titanic. You might feel great, but the boat is going down. The boat is sinking, and an unbeliever might feel peaceful, but it is a temporary illusion. They're not at peace with God. Think about this. If a man were to commit a serious crime here in the U.S. and yet flee, that man would not be at peace. That man would be in fear of being called, and if, if he tried to come back home, he would be called, he would be arrested, he would be sent to prison. Yet when God declares us righteous, the Bible says we have peace with God. And when it says peace with God, it doesn't mean a feeling. It doesn't mean a serene feeling that just washes over us. No, the, the feeling that Paul mentions here is not this subjective feeling that comes and goes. No, it's an objective reality that happens when we trust what Jesus did for us. Listen, way too many people treat Christianity and treat religion as, in a, a whole as a way to bring me therapeutic feelings of peace. I just want therapeutic feelings of peace. And listen, you can go to the doctor and get that, but it won't give you peace with God. It won't bring you peace with God. It's called peace with God, but here's the thing. We have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, but also, in addition to, when we have peace with God, it will bring to the believer's life the peace of God, that we will have the peace of God, and this is so interesting that Paul says this in Philippians 4, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's interesting that of all the titles of Jesus in Scripture, he is called the Prince of Peace. Not the Prince of Joy, not the Prince of Love, not the Prince of Hope, even though he could very well have all of those titles. But he is the Prince of Peace because he gives us peace. We have the peace, we have peace with God and we have the peace of God. And please hear this. If, if you're taking notes, write this down. Jesus said that we have an enemy who wants to still kill and destroy. Of all the things that Satan wants to still kill and destroy in your life, peace is at the top of the list. 
He wants to still kill and destroy your peace. So what does he do? He intentionally stirs up discord, division, disruption, disturbances, both within us and around us. Satan is the God, the little g, God of chaos and confusion. He uses every opportunity to upset us and knock us off balance. He wants us to be filled with anxiety, to be filled with worry, to be filled with with war and turmoil within. He wants us to lack peace. Step back and look at your life this past week and think about all the things that try to take away your peace. And at the time, you weren't thinking, man, think about how the enemy's working. You were thinking, that stupid person, if they would just get out of my way, I'd have peace. That's, that's how we think. But, of course, we forget Ephesians 6, 12. That's not our battle. Our battle is against the realities of the spiritual world in which we live. But think about, in what ways is the enemy trying to steal your peace? Only God's peace can dig in enough to offer an anchoring and stability that holds us when all the difficulties and chaos and confusion comes our way. This world in which we live is filled with thousands upon thousands of peace stealers, things that will try to steal our peace. Yet we can have a peace that surpasses all understanding. We need to walk in that peace. Now, historians tell us, before we move on, in thinking back to the Roman warfare, given, given the hobnails at the base of the soldier's shoes, an army marching on a stone-paved road must have created considerable clatter. So imagine thousands of soldiers walking into a city with these hobnail cleats on, on a paved road and hearing, hearing them. Hearing them, and th think about this. You might think, well, the enemy could hear them coming. But that was the point. The point was they wanted to intimidate the enemy. They wanted to hear, they wanted the enemy to hear them coming. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters. There's nothing, there's nothing that intimidates the enemy of our souls more than when we are walking in the peace of God. When we're walking in the peace of God and we're walking together in the peace of God, nothing intimidates our enemy more than that. So do you want peace? Believe God. Do you want peace? Trust in God. In fact, write this down. Peace from God can't be separated from trust in God. Peace from God can't be separated from trust in God. If you want the peace of God, trust him more and more and more and more. The gospel, this gospel imparts peace. But then secondly, this gospel demands readiness. This gospel demands that we stay ready, that we understand that we are under attack. Therefore, we stay ready. We keep the shoes on ready to fight. In Ephesians 6.15, when it, it speaks of the strength and the steadfastness which the gospel gives to those who believe, it gives firmness. But the Greek word translated readiness here in verse 15 is used nowhere else in the New Testament. Yet it speaks of a foundation by which we stand, being sure-footed, being established. Now let me show you just one of, there's many things I could tell you as far as what we need to be ready for. But let me just give you one example that Paul gives us in Romans chapter 12. I just want to walk through this real quickly. You see it on the screen. Paul says, let your love be genuine. Are you ready to love? 
Are you ready to love others? Now, not void of truth. We love others by the foundation of all truth. But Jesus said this in John 13, by this all will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Now, I'm going to make a statement that I want you to think about. Everything that you do in your life, everything that you do in your life is done in love. So everything you do in your life is done in love. The problem is most of it's done in love for yourself. Maybe it's done in some kind of a weird way, a love for someone else that we think will give us what only God will give us. But everything we do is done in love. But only what matters eternally, only what will exist eternally is done for love of God. And when we love him, he gives us more love for others. Are we ready to love? And then abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. So abhor means to run away from, flee from what is evil. And then hold fast, be glued to what is good. Are you ready to, to run from evil, to hold fast to what is good? And our greatest good is God. Then it says this, love one another, outdo one another in showing honor. Are you ready to outdo one another in showing honor, being fervent in spirit and serving the Lord? What would our church look like if we, in all humility, try to outdo one another in service? What if we, as a faith family, what would it look like if we humbly said, no, 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 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to serve you more than I allow you to serve me. I'm not here to be served. I'm here to serve. I'm just going to serve. I'm going to look for opportunities to serve. What would this church look like? And then he goes on. Rejoice in hope. Are we ready to rejoice? Do we rejoice in what God has done? Be patient in tribulation. Are we ready to endure tribulation, to endure temptation? Are we ready to do those things and then be constant in prayer? Are we prayed up? Listen, this text is telling us be ready. And I think in two ways. Number one, be ready. We're in a battle. Be ready to be attacked. Be ready for attacks that will come. But secondly, be ready for God to use you. Did you know that every day of your life, God is at work around you? God is at work around you every day of your life. The problem is we miss it. Here's a good prayer to pray every day. God, show me where you're at work all around me and help me to join you. God, show me where you're working around me and help me to join you in the work. Simple as that. God, you're at work today. Open my eyes to it and help me to join you. You know what's going to happen when we pray that prayer? God's going to do it. But sometimes, all of a sudden, it's going to be like, well, I don't have time. Other things I could be doing. There's a show I want to binge today. And we begin to make excuses. But God will, he's inviting us to join him in the work. The gospel demands readiness. But then number three, the gospel commands our going. The gospel commands our going. And I am convinced that when Paul is writing this to Ephesians 6, when he gets to verse 15, he talks about having your, your feet shod with the shoes of readiness, with the gospel peace, that he had Isaiah the prophet in mind. For in Isaiah 52.7, on the screen, it says, Isaiah wrote, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness who publishes salvation who says to zion your god reigns 
Listen, this passage, Isaiah 52 and Ephesians 6.15 are the only two passages in the whole Bible where feet, good news, and peace occur together. So feet, good news, and peace. And what, what's striking about this verse is that of all of our body parts, our feet are the most not beautiful. Amen, Madison? So of all of our body parts, our feet are the most not beautiful. I mean, if you want to have a beautiful feet contest, let's do it. Madison can be the judge. She's excited, cannot wait for it. Yet, let me say this. Our feet look a whole lot better than the first century soldier's feet. They had to walk everywhere with sandals on, many times walking behind animals doing what animals do. Leon Morris said this, Messengers normally traveled on foot, and the feet were the significant members. They might be dirty, and smell after a long, hot journey. But those are to those who eagerly awaited good news, their feet were beautiful. So what makes our feet beautiful? What makes your feet and my feet beautiful? Here's the answer. When your feet go anywhere with gospel intentionality, your feet are beautiful. When your feet go anywhere going, God, take me. My feet are going somewhere. Help me to be a blessing. Help me to be light in the midst of darkness. Help me to open my mouth and point someone to you. When that is our purpose, our feet are beautiful. And let me just say this. Some commentators and even some pastors, pastors that I respect highly, have said that Ephesians 6.15 um, does not speak of spreading the gospel. So Ephesians 6.15 doesn't mean anything about spreading the gospel. It just only means standing your ground in the midst of the spiritual battle. Now, I would stand against that because we live in a spiritual world and we are in a spiritual war. There is no time by which the enemy is not attacking us in some way. So Paul's not saying, hey, just stand there until you figure it out, until the war is over, and then do something. No, no, if you stand, just stand still until the spiritual war is over, you're going to die, and nothing will be done for the sake of the glory of God. In fact, I would say this. The battle gets more fierce when you commit yourself with taking the gospel to other people. When you commit yourself to, I'm going to take the gospel to others, the battle will even be more fierce around you. Why? Because the enemy wants to keep your mouth shut. The enemy wants to throw things at you that takes your mind off lost people and puts your mind on yourself. Yes, our calling is to stand our ground, yet our calling is also to push back into enemy territory, to take back the territory that Satan has stolen, to expose darkness to light. Let me just say this. Giving the gospel away is one of the best experiences for us to experience the power of God. The best way for you to experience the power of God is speak the gospel. Declare the gospel. The more ready we are to move with the gospel, the, the more life, power, and joy will flow in our lives. And in telling the gospel to others, you will hear it again and again and again and again. And you will, it will increase your faith, your trust in the one you're speaking about. In fact, let me say this. You say, I hear or I say it all the time, and you hear it all the time, but no one preaches to you more than you preach to yourself. The problem is most of us preach pretty stupid messages to ourselves. 
And what I mean by that is this. We don't, we don't declare this over our lives. We declare, I can't. Everything's against me. Poor old me. This. Oh, sad me. Everybody's against me. Poor. You know, woe is me. All of these things. You know what this book says? If God is for me, who can be against me? Listen, I have a whole lot to pray about in my life. I have a whole lot to pray about, but according to this book, I have nothing to worry about. I have a lot to pray about, a whole lot to pray about, but nothing to worry about. Trusting him. So I preach the gospel to myself over and over again. I preach the gospel to my children or to your grandchildren. We let them know the gospel, never ceasing to preach and proclaim the gospel, what what it means to our lives, the difference it's made in our lives. We proclaim it to other people. Forget this. If the good news really means that there is no one too lowly that God doesn't pursue, if it really means that there is no one so insignificant that God himself will overlook, if the gospel really means that there is no one so guilty that God would forsake them, or if it really means that there is no one so broken that God cannot heal or no one so lost that God cannot find, if that's what the gospel means, then why would we not want to take that message to others? Why would we not want to tell people what God has done and will do? Now, let me end this way. Last week, it was Batman and Spider-Man. Can't top that, Jared. But I can say this. Here's where we're going this week. How many of you own a roll of duct tape? Now, duct tape, not duck, quack, quack tape. Duct tape. Now, we know, it. Like, how many of you don't own duct tape? Like, if you live in, on the north side of the ocean, you don't own it, I, I, your card has been revo- revoked. Like, you need duct tape in your life. But the purpose and the uses for this magical adhesive are endless. Yet, unfortunately, one of the things that duct tape can't do is it can't seal ducts. It can't seal HVAC duct systems. In fact, Max Sherman, a physicist, who conducted tests for three months on a variety of sealing materials, noted that duct tape was one of the few sealants that failed when repairing air conditioning HVAC systems. He noted, we tried as many different kinds of sealants as we could get our hands on. Of all the things we tested, only duct tape failed. It failed reliably and often quite catastrophically. Think about that. Duct tape can do many things, many good things, many amazing. It might be holding your car together. In fact, duct tape right now is making our door in the back fellowship hall. It's making it work so that we can get in and out. We're held together right now by duct tape. It can do a lot of good things, but the one thing it can't do is a thing that's in its name. And brothers and sisters, as followers of Jesus Christ, we can do many things. We can do many, many good things. But if we aren't following Jesus by declaring his glory and his goodness in the world in which we live, we're not doing the thing by which we've been called to do. Are we declaring, are we giving ourselves to making him known? Are we, are we declaring like Isaiah 52? It ends with this, verse 7. They're declaring good news and they're saying this. Our God reigns. Our God reigns. That's what we're saying in the midst of this world. Listen, this world is crazy. This world's chaotic. This world is shift, shifting. And many people, their houses are falling because they're building it on sinking sand. And yet we are standing on solid foundations saying, my God reigns. He reigns. We hold to him. We trust in him. Let me end this way. Do you have peace with God this morning? 
Do you have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you trusted Jesus to save you? So do you have peace with God? Is, it at, is God at peace with you? I mean, do you have the peace of God? Does the peace of God surround you? Does it guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus? Are you trusting and more and more experiencing more and more of his peace? Does readiness describe your life? Are you ready for the battles that come? And are you ready to be used for God when God provides those opportunities? And then are you making him known? Will you make him known? Oh, to God that we would give our lives as soldiers of his, empowered by his spirit, putting on the armor that he has worn and given to us, that we would let people know the eternal impact this gospel has had on our lives, that we would give it away over and over and over. I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to call the praise team forward as we enter this time of invitation and consecration, and let us pray together. Father, today the, the question, Lord, that must be asked again and again is, are we at peace with you? Do we have peace with you? And Lord, are you at peace with us? Have we surrendered our lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ? Have we called on the name of the Lord for salvation? Lord, we pray that if any in this room hasn't done that or any listening online hasn't done that, that today would be the day of salvation. But also, Lord, we pray for every child of God in this room, every child of God listening, Lord, that we would know the peace of God that comes as we trust you more and more and more. Lord, you will not fail us. No one who trusts in you will be put to shame. No one. God, make us ready. Make us ready in the battle and make us ready for usefulness. Lord, help us to preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. Help us to preach the gospel to our families. Help us to declare the gospel to others. For we are not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Finish this time. In Jesus' name.